I knew that I had to go farther. And if I had to go 80 times, I would have, you know, if I had to go 90, if I had to go 100, I would have did that too. You know, I would have never stopped. That's Jonah Williams, CEO and principal attorney of J.A. Williams Law. It took a lot of resilience and a lot of grit because I had to, in a sense, kind of draw from my own self the belief that I could do this. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Jonah Williams to discuss why we can't take care of our firms if we're not taking care of ourselves, how 70 no's eventually became one very important yes, and the importance of protecting your business and adapting as an entrepreneur. You kind of run the risk of your company either going away or being completely irrelevant if you don't kind of pay attention to the way the world and the economy and the shifts in culture and the shifts in media. Like you have to pay attention to those things as an entrepreneur. And I feel like if you don't, then you're not setting yourself up for your company to be here for the long term. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made-to-order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. Jonah Williams is an accomplished CEO, business advisor, and has been featured in publications like Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine. She's also the owner of J.A. Williams Law, an artist empowerment firm which specializes in the practice of entertainment, business, and intellectual property law, helping artists protect their work and build their empires. As you'll soon hear, Jonah's passion for entrepreneurship began at an early age. I had a business starting from seven. It was a friendship bracelet business. I was not sitting on the playground playing with kids. I was filling orders. So I had order forms. I had, I had colors. I had a whole, um, you know, setup. The kids would pay me and I would make the bracelets on my recess and then I would sell them. And that is the way that I made my first little bit of income because, you know, I come from a family where I didn't have an allowance. So to buy all the little kid things that I wanted, my thought was to start a business. <laughs> I mean, did you consider it a business then? Because I mean, obviously now looking back, I mean, that's not something that, you know, that everybody was doing. It was probably very, very few people, but like, did it just come naturally to you? It did. And I actually did think of it as a business. I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm a CEO, I'm a business owner or anything like that. But I took it that seriously. And I did see it as like, this is my job. This is the thing that, you know, I'm going to do with my time and my energy to get the money that I need. And I did have the mindset of like, okay, I'm going to take this part of my money and use it for, you know, the things that I want and then use this part of my money for buying more materials, buying more friendship laces string. And I, was at the fabric store, they knew me because <laughs> I'd come in with my mom. They knew me and they would tell me about, oh, we got 
these new colors and this and that. And I remember this very, very distinctly. So yeah, I did take it seriously and I did learn how to deal with money in that regard. <laughs> so your mom, obviously she supported you in this, right? You had her helping you out or at least being able to like take you to the store to get materials. She was super supportive. She told me as I grew up, you know, I knew I didn't have to really worry about you. Like you were my kid that I didn't have to worry about because you were just driven. And I told her very early on what I was going to do with my life. I wrote it down. I have it still, <laughs> you know, so it was I was that kind of kid. So she was very supportive in um, in whatever I wanted to creatively pursue and what I wanted to do with this little business that I had. <laughs> And speaking of creative pursuits, what what drew you to the music industry? Because from what I've read, I mean, you, you've had a career as a as a songwriter and a backup vocalist. Like, what what drew you into that industry? I'm from Detroit, and so music was always such a really, really big part of my life and growing up in my existence and performance as well. And so just going into that was natural for me. I started singing at five. I was doing my business in, in singing and songwriting and doing those kinds of things. And it kind of, um, I went to a creative arts elementary school that was really focused on the creative arts. So it was natural for me to go into that industry. And it was something that I felt very passionate about at that time. And I loved um, doing that type of creative expression. And then ultimately it took a turn to where I ended up on a different side. <laughs> But uh, but it started off on that side just because it was natural. Like my mom was a record promoter as well. And so we just had a family that was really involved in the entertainment industry. And so, yeah, it just felt like a natural progression of what my life was going through at that time. So you hinted at it, but there's a moment of, <laughs> I guess, fortuitous adversity that you encountered. Now, a lot of people would look at this and just say, hey, I was just taken advantage of. This is a terrible experience. But that, in many ways, I think was the genesis behind your motivation to become a lawyer. I was working in the music industry. I wasn't doing this on the side. I was actually in the industry, working at record labels, working with engineers, working with different acts that were coming through the studio. I was doing that on a regular basis. And as I grew up in, you know, into my teen years, that's where I focused my energy and attention outside of school. And so to be told that, you know, I would be credited and compensated and all these different things would happen and I'm doing performances and things like that. And, you know, just kind of believing in what the adults around me were saying and then realizing that, you know, that was not the case. I guess I could say it kind of created a feeling in me of being taken advantage of in this way that just felt really wrong. And I had this deep sense of like wanting to see justice. <laughs> And that's just a part of my, I guess, my makeup in general. It's like, you know, I was the kid that would like beat up kids for kids. You know what I mean? Like I was very much like the, you know, that kid that was really into, you know, this is wrong. We got to fight for it. You know, at the time I decided to step away from the industry on that side. And then I realized that I still, I didn't want this to happen to other young people. I didn't want what happened to me to be what happened to other, you know, young people and, you know, people who were naive and didn't understand their contracts, they didn't understand what their parents were signing them to do, and they just didn't understand. And I, and I felt really um, compelled to go into that. And even when I entered into law school, I worked for an entertainment attorney on um, child labor laws, specifically. I realized I had a deep passion for advocacy in that regard to make sure that other young people didn't experience what I had experienced. And that just became
became really important to me and a beacon of why it is that I created my firm to be called the Artist Empowerment Firm. It was really about focusing on empowering other people and making sure that they were well-informed, if that makes sense, so that I could make those decisions that I didn't get a chance to make. In every industry, I'm sure people are being taken advantage of and exploited to some extent, but it seems like to me that in the entertainment industry, the prevalence of this is greater. I mean, I, I don't know, I could be off base. Maybe it's just because we hear about it more in the media and so on, but why is that if it's true? Unfortunately, if you look at history, the structure of the entertainment industry thrives on young, you know, vibrant energy. It's a structure that doesn't have much creativity. The young people, the artists, those creative folks, they're the ones who actually are bringing in that energy and they're the ones who are making the work that can then be sold. So if the industry needs that it's an industry that's looking at, you know, how can I get the most profit without paying so much for it? And if you're a young person and you don't understand that, you're going to sometimes work against your own interests. And they do work on selling you a dream in some sense, you know, like we're going to lift you up and we're going to help you and we're going to invest in you. And all of that stuff seems really exciting when you're just a kid with a song. You know what I mean? So it all kind of happens that way. And I do think that we do hear about it more in this industry, but I also think that it takes place more in this industry as well. And I'm curious, so when you were in law school, uh, I also read that you took a number of different business classes, but the business classes seemed like those, those came like easy to you, right? Like, it was just, it was almost like, well, of course, right? Which is, which is not very common for a lot of people going to law school. I've heard you describe it. It was like the heavens opened up and the sun shined down. <laughs> what what was that moment like? <laughs> I feel like everyone in law school, at, after your second year, you're kind of looking for what's your thing going to be if you didn't come in immediately with it. I came in immediately thinking that I'm going to go into entertainment law, period, like full stop. That's what I wanted. But... I took business class because I just wanted to understand more about, you know, business and business law. And when I took it, it literally felt like that. It was like, oh, my gosh, like this, this is the thing. And it was exciting to me because of my love for entrepreneurship. So I feel like there was a part of me that just kind of it latched on to that young person that I was that would, had created their own business. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like I look at how it is that I can help artists start businesses because businesses are what empowers that, you know, and I just kind of made these connections and it was, yeah, it was incredible. I was so excited about that class. And, you know, of course I got an A in that class and it was just, it solidified it. And then just kind of hearing my teachers tell me that I had, you know, a gift for this, or I had a gift for writing, or I had a gift for understanding these concepts. Like it just kind of fueled that, that people actually saw me and were like, listen, you know, you should really think about this. You really, you should really consider, you know, going into this, in the, in this realm. And there was no direct link. I just made it mentally like, artists, advocacy, business, entertainment industry, what kind of happened to me, all of it kind of came together and coalesced when I took that first business law class. <laughs> I think it was probably destined to the fact that you, you would go on ultimately to open up your own law firm. But when you came out of law school and you were working at a securities and litigation firm, at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to go all in to my own firm, start my own firm. I'm not going to work at another law firm. Like, what was that decision like? I started off working in entertainment litigation 
I was working for a smaller firm doing that work and realized that I didn't enjoy it. I respect and appreciate litigators, but I just given my own constitution to wanting to help empower people, there was something that felt like, you know, once we get to litigation, you know, we're at we're at the end of what can actually be done amicably, you know. And so for me, I was more in, interested in prevention. That's part of the reason why I left that firm as I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do next. I had received offers to go to other firms. If they see something in me, you know, then maybe I should actually see it in myself. You know, if they're seeing something in me in terms of wanting me to come to their firm and help them build their practice, I must be able to do this. And then I can actually have the control over what clients I take and what I do and all of these things. And so, as I say, the math wasn't mathing for me, um, looking at what it is that I would receive versus the, the time, energy, and input that I was going to be putting into building these other practices. And so it made me want to start my own. And as I was starting my own, I also worked at a securities and litigation firm as well to kind of build myself and build, you know, my income. And I was working all the time because I was working during the day at the firm. And then in the evening, I was working on building my own business. And I did that until it was time for me to go. So I want to talk about that. Now, most of the people listening to this podcast, I mean, they're entrepreneurs and they're firm owners. So many of them had to remember that moment when they started their business. But for those who aren't, I mean, a lot of times I think people hear the story and they're like, and then I went off on my own. And then they feel like the story, it's like happily ever after and ends there. But I actually think that that's where all the hardships start, right? Because it's like, yes, you know, you, you go and you start your own business. But if you could speak to the kind of the experience that you had, because I think you actually have me beat. So my my story is that I had 21 failed pitches and then on 22, we finally landed our first client. But you actually went quite a bit longer than I did. I think you, you went up almost, I think 71 times. Is that right? I did. <laughs> I did. I did. I had, um, I had 71 sales conversations before I actually landed my first client. By the time I hit 71, I had kind of hit my limit of like, okay, I'm going to crack in a minute if I don't get a yes. But what I loved about that whole process was that I started to learn more about who, who was ideally who I wanted to work with. Like I was having a, a lot of conversations, but I realized I wasn't having them with the right person. I didn't have that clarity that having those conversations actually afforded me. And I feel like the more conversations I had towards the end, I was honing in on who I ideally wanted to like work with. And I think that it took a lot of resilience and a lot of grit because I had to, in a sense, kind of draw from my own self the belief that I could do this because I didn't have anyone that was saying, you got this, you can do it, girl. Da, 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 da. It was it was tough that first time, like just trying to talk to as many people as possible. And I mean, I was doing, you know, contracts for friends and they were artist friends and I was charging them like, you know, very, very little to nothing, um, you know, just doing what I could do to get the experience while I was also trying to get actual paid work. So it was quite the journey <laughs> with that. <laughs> a lot of times when people ask me, they're like, hey, what kept you going? What kept you going after, you know, they failed 16 times and then 18 times and 20 times. And, and I'm curious, you coming up on, you know, 71. It's one thing to say, oh, I don't know if I would have kept going, but you did keep going 70 times. So what if it took 80? It, it's, uh, that's where I'm wondering what kept you going? 
I didn't want to be stuck at that firm for the rest of my life. And I knew that there was something greater in me. <laughs> I knew that I was destined for something greater than what I was doing. And so I had to keep my energy and attention focused on the vision that I had for myself and for my life versus my current present circumstances of where it was that I was at that time. And I didn't have seed money. I didn't have investors. I didn't have all of that stuff. I was literally doing everything from my paycheck. <laughs> so I also realized that I had a cap on what I could do. I had a cap on what I could make. There was a, a moment at the firm where I realized, yeah, I'm out of here and that was the moment where they told me and one other attorney that we couldn't have our phones on our desk. And I don't want anybody to have control over me like that. That was really like the moment that I knew 100% that I was out of there. But I'd always had that vision. I always knew if I got to a certain amount of, you know, clients and I felt grounded and stable enough to do so, that that was when I would actually leave because I knew that there was something greater that I needed to do in this world. And it was never my goal to stay at a securities and litigations firm. I knew that was my bridge job, aka my investment in my business. That's how I saw it. So I knew that I had to go farther. And if I had to go 80 times, I would have, you know, if I had to go 90, if I had to go 100, I would have did that too. You know, I wouldn't, I would have never stopped. But, but I'm telling you that by 71, I was cracking a little bit. <laughs> There you go. Listen, I understand. Now, it's interesting because what happens next is that, of course, you go out on your own and then you're obviously working 24-7, right? I mean, it's insane hours. Everybody wants to talk about self-care. And is self-care the priority or is like getting a business off the ground a priority? And can you do both at that moment? At that time, no, I, I didn't really care too much about self-care at all. But also, you know, the entrepreneurship culture kind of supported that. It was all grind culture, like grind, make it happen, da-da-da-da-da. Like that was the culture at that time. So I felt like I was in good company. <laughs> Everyone supported workaholism. Everybody said that you weren't really working for your business if you didn't work 24-7, if you weren't putting in 70, 80 hours, if you weren't waking up at like 5 a.m., you know, before the sun hit and getting all your emails done. If you weren't doing that at that time, then you actually, are you a real entrepreneur? Do you actually care about yourself? Do you actually care about your business? <laughs> you know, so there was, um, you know, and just by nature, I am a person that, works hard. I, I have struggled with work addiction before. And so it was kind of, it just fed that for me in a sense, because I wanted to do it. You know, I wanted to do it. It was feeding me in a certain type of way at that time. And it was feeding me until it didn't. And then I had to transition and, and shift to something that was more sustainable because I don't think that working at that pace and doing things in that manner would be sustainable for the rest of my life. And I do want to be an entrepreneur for the rest of my life. The most successful entrepreneurs know that what got them here won't get them there. And for our organizations to evolve, we as leaders must evolve as well. I asked Jonay how leaders can stay ahead of market changes while protecting their most important assets. 
I think that with the growth of social media, people started to become a lot more serious about, okay, I need to actually speak to an attorney. I actually need to have these ducks in a row, et cetera. And as they've seen more people, other people be their ideas and their IP and things like that get exploited. And, you know, there's so many things that have happened um, since I started. And it used to feel like I was yelling into an echo chamber. You need to protect your IP. You need to protect your business. Like people were just like, girl, I'm just trying to grind and make my money. Like, I don't care about that. And what I've learned about being an entrepreneur is, is that oftentimes you do have to kind of shift and grow your business with the times. And, and I think that, you know, you kind of run the risk of your company either going away or being completely irrelevant if you don't kind of pay attention to the way the world and the economy and the shifts in culture and the shifts in media. Like you have to pay attention to those things as an entrepreneur. And I feel like if you don't, then you're not setting yourself up for your company to be here for the long term. And so mine now, um, I feel like I kind of followed the natural shifts of not only just culture and society, but also just who was coming to me. I had so many entrepreneurs who were interested in this over time. I started to you know, just like when going into law school thinking I'm going to be, I'm going to be an entertainment attorney, period, full stop. And then realizing that it actually was more centered around business and entrepreneurship. That's kind of the trajectory of what my firm went through. And those were the people that were coming to me. And those were the people that I was really, really interested in serving and diving deep into the legal issues that surrounded entrepreneurship. So that's what I do now. What are, when it comes to entrepreneurs, like what are some of the biggest mistakes you've seen them make in failing to create the right, let's say like legal foundation and protecting their business? Like what are just the things that, you know, I guess they commonly overlook that it's really important to protect? I think now they're, they're concerned with intellectual property um, more so than they were in the past. But I think the one thing that they make a lot of mistakes on is employment. Um, employment and how to understand independent contractors versus employees, when to make that shift, what are the compliance things that you need to have in place. Those are kind of the issues that I see people running up against more, more often than not. And then also um, sometimes issues with their sales pages and, you know, the promises that they're making, the disclaimers that they need, like those kind of things. I, I think that they don't a lot of times they don't realize that there are certain things you can and cannot say on, you know, items that you're putting out into the world, whether that's video, whether that's audio, whether that's a sales page, there are certain um, claims and, and things that you cannot make. And there's nuance to the way it is that you have to say certain things in order to, yes, make sure that you have the sales that you want, but also at the same time, you know, this part of the law is constantly evolving and changing with privacy policies, terms and conditions, and the way it is that, you know, European standards are very different than, you know, U.S. standards and these kinds of things. So I think that they run into a little bit more complication with understanding how to actually deal online in a way that won't get them slapped with a legal issue of, you know, different sorts. So that, I think that that's some of the main stuff that I come up against now. <laughs> it's fascinating. It's like, you know, who would have thought, right? The, the people that are saying, hey, if you attend this real estate course, you'll be a millionaire, right? That, that someone would, <laughs> would not approach that with skepticism, but there are people obviously being taken advantage of. You will see so many ads like that and so many empty promises and people fall for it. And I think that there is a lack of ethics when it comes to the way it is that people put their their things online and some of the assertions that they're making around what their product can and cannot do and what it can provide and the results and things like that. And they rent these fancy houses and stand in them and... <laughs> 
you know, and, and say, yeah, you know, you can be like me. And it's like, you know, but to be honest, like Michael, that was the, that's the entertainment industry. They rent cars, they rent, you know, chains for videos and stuff like that. And they sell you a dream. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of similar in that regard. And, and to your point, I mean, it seems like the barrier to entry has been like lowered and continues to be lowered. So now somebody can really go online, post a video. You know, they don't necessarily, maybe that they don't even have a registered business. There's no brick and mortar, right? It's all done virtually. And, it, and it's like, it can be presented a certain way. So I, I imagine that probably creates a greater emphasis on like legitimate businesses to actually have that correct legal foundation. Definitely. The other thing that I run into often is issues with security because there's so many data breaches that are happening now with businesses. And many businesses are asking me, like, what are the ways that I can kind of secure information for my clients, secure information for, you know, on the back end for my company, like things like that. You know, that's just the ways of the Internet now. Their information can be easily found, easily accessed, and, you know, it can create certain data breach issues as well. And so, I think that the legal foundation for an entrepreneur is more complex than it used to be, but there's still certain things that are necessary. Your intellectual property, your contracts, the agreements that you make for the money going out of your business in terms of what you're selling and the money coming you know, into your business different things that have to do with the way it is that you conduct your business actually online, the foundation of putting your um, tax structure in place and your your business entity in place and how you need to transition that over time. And depending on if you're taking, you know, what kind of agreements do you have with investors and, you know, venture capitalists. And so I think that there are some things that are foundational, but there are many things that are not a one-size-fit-all. And so that's why it's so important to actually speak to an attorney and talk about these things so that you know what's best for your business specifically. And how much of this would you say, like how much of the onus do you think is on the entrepreneur to educate themselves versus just simply finding the right partner? I mean, the law is going to say it's 100% on you. Like, if That's right. <laughs> That's your, listen, it's your fault. If you if you get the wrong accountant, that's your business. If, if they told you to file this and you meant to file that, your fault. To me, what I um what I feel is really important is and what I teach my clients in terms of business advising and coaching is I teach them how to find the right people to the right advisors for them. Because there's no way that you're going to know all the different things. And I mean, even myself as someone who You know, I went to law school to learn how to be a great lawyer. They didn't teach me nothing about running a law firm. So I had to kind of seek out that information. And I made a ton of mistakes in the very beginning, like we all do. But I think that it is important to kind of look at, okay, who are the best kinds of advisors? And so even in my, um, I have my own course where it really is for like starting entrepreneurs to say, okay, here are the legal things you need to think about. Here's the way to find the kind of right advisors. Here's the kind of questions you need to ask them, those kind of things. So it might not be me. I might not be the best advisor for you, but here's how you can figure out who would be the best to kind of help you through some of these things. And also I highly recommend referrals. Like I'm very, very into the referral system. And I think that talking to different people in your network and asking them, well, who do you work with? Do you like them? Do you trust them? You know, these kind of things, that's the best way to find like some of the better advisors is just go through your network of people that you trust, like other entrepreneurs that you think are killing it out here, but they're your friend. Hey, who do you use? You know, I'm kind of confused about what it is that I need. Who's your lawyer? Who do you, you know, work with? And that kind of helps us all, essentially. (laughs) 
Now, you mentioned earlier that, especially coming out of those early days of working basically 24-7, that maybe was a period of time, but the goal is obviously longevity, and you want to keep doing this for a long time. What are some of the habits that you've adopted or even, maybe even removed that help keep you just on track and operating in peak state? Two phones. That's one thing that, <laughs> that has um, helped me exponentially in terms of keeping boundaries. Having one phone that's specifically just for friends and family and, you know, joy scrolling, <laughs> that kind of thing. And then also um, a phone that's specifically related to business and it has my clients, it has my ability to access me in that way. I think that has made a huge difference in my quality of life and just the way it is that I shut off at the end of the day. Also keeping certain hours and being very, very vigilant about taking my time in the morning to take care of myself. I'm very much an advocate of taking whatever time that you can and having time to set aside to nourish yourself, to work out, to, you know, get your mindset together, connect to whatever and whomever it is that you connect to spiritually and take time to um, connect to the people in your life. Also exercising boundaries with the people in your life and also boundaries with clients. I am not taking calls at 10, 11, 12 a.m. I'm not doing it. And so I think that it's important to do that for yourself so that you can continue to enjoy the work that you do. Well, I'll just say, I'll speak for myself. I don't enjoy my work when I don't have boundaries and I'm working 24-7. Like when I'm working 24-7, all that does is put me into a state of being extremely tired and eventually, you know, it's a sleigh ride into burnout, as you know. So for me, keeping a proper schedule, having support, you know, having my team and working specifically on boundaries and making sure that I keep um, an eye on my own wellness and letting my wellness routine actually shift and change as I need it to. So sometimes I might not need as much sleep, but I need more working out or X, Y, Z and really kind of paying attention to being mindful around what it is that I need and making adjustments to give myself that. At times, I think it seemed counterintuitive, right? It's like, take care of yourself in order to take care of the business. The workaholics, they get it. They know what, <laughs> what we're talking about. It's interesting to me, like, how long did it take you until you were saying, all right, I've got to put these boundaries in place. I've got to start doing things differently because obviously that wasn't the case when you first started the business. So I'm just wondering at what point did it get to where you said, I've got to do things differently? So you and I started at basically the same time. I technically started in 2011, but I really started in 2012. Like, you know, right in February of 2012 was when like everything was like, okay, we got the paperwork, let's go, right? So um, it took me about three years, no, four. I would say the end of 2015 into 2016 was when I hit a major massive burnout. And that's when I had to kind of shut everything down and take um, some time and space away from my work and really just kind of take care of myself. And that was a very, very hard time because I didn't want to let go. I didn't want to stop, but I was getting all the signs that I needed to and that I should. And, and I do talk about, you know, my friend who basically had said to me like, well, if you were sick, you would have to take this time. You know, and I was like, she's right. So I just did it, you know, and it was a very challenging time. But what it taught me was I needed to do things differently. If I was going to continue, I had to make more space for myself in the work that I was doing. And I didn't have any space for myself. It was like all working for all my clients, 
working for, you know, the, the products and programs and services and this and this and this and speaking and doing all, all these different things. And I was completely etched out and it turned into feeling very miserable and feeling very tired and feeling very much like I didn't want to even be an attorney anymore. And that wasn't true. It wasn't true. I was just tired. <laughs> I was just burnt out. I was feeling all of that. That was when I had to take that time. And it literally took me all of 2016 into half of 2017 before I actually felt like myself again. So I would say about a year and a half before I was like, okay, do I still want this? The answer is yes. Okay, how do I have to do things differently so that I never end up here again? And so I had to just take baby steps and check in with myself. There was a lot of checking in. It was like, all right, I did some of this. Okay, how do I feel? All right, I did some of that. How do I feel? Okay, I worked a little bit longer today than I, than I worked on this day. How does it feel? You know, and there was a lot of checking in. And then also I had to move environments. I had to leave New York because New York was definitely that energy of like, go grind, what are you doing? And there was a lot of judgment <laughs> of myself that came along with being in that environment and being burnt out and not being able to work at those levels. So I had to change an environment and, and be in a space that was more supportive of me slowing down and figuring things out. And that's what I did. And so, and I'm so super grateful that I did that because I don't even think that I would still be in the place that I am in now had I not did that environmental shift and then started to assess, you know, myself. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. I mean, to your point, I mean, entrepreneurship really is pain tolerance because, I mean, you're going to deal with problems or challenges every single day. And on eight hours of rest, when you've exercised, you're eating well, it's like you can, you can overcome anything. But when you're three days in, you've slept two hours a night, you know, and these things start to <laughs> compound and you're exhausted. And now like the you know, small problems become big problems. And then, you know, before you know it, it's like, that's it. You, you kind of hit that burnout stage. Exactly. And you can't, I, I don't feel like if your body and your mind are not functioning at the most optimal levels, and I've, and I've read about this um, and listened to other people who have way bigger businesses than myself or, you know, or entertainers who are now running companies and things like that. If your mind and your body are not working at the best levels and your health is really poor and you're not, you're kind of supporting it not being at its best, it's going to be very hard to make decisions. It's going to be hard to be creative. You're going to have a low tolerance for being able to, to um, encounter challenges that you're inevitably going to face as an entrepreneur. You're going to be less malleable. You're going to be cranky as fuck. You're not going to be a joy to be around. Your team is not going to want to talk to you. You're going to become a bad boss. Like there's all these things that happen. It's like a sleigh ride into mess. So why not just, you know what I'm saying, do what's necessary to kind of put yourself there. And I don't get eight hours of sleep every night. You know what I mean? But I have it in my schedule that if I do spend time where I'm not getting the rest that I need, then I build that into my schedule elsewhere and say, okay, then I'm going to take a personal day on this day so that I can actually catch up on that sleep. So it's not always perfect, but I allow myself the space to work with the challenges as they come to getting the sufficient amount of self-care that I need. So how do you define success? What does that look like to you? I feel like it's internal happiness, like internal well-being. If I'm feeling really connected to and happy and grounded and solid in myself, and I feel in alignment with my values, alignment with my purpose, and I'm actually on 
the journey that I feel is right for me, that feels successful to me. Like I'm not listening and worried about what everyone else thinks I should be doing, but instead I'm in alignment with how I'm moving through the world. And that for me is what makes me happy. Like I feel like when I feel like, okay, I'm on my track and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm doing my very best, that's when I feel like I'm the most successful. It, by the way, easy said, right? Because what you just described, <laughs> and unfortunately, we're living in this world, right, where people are constantly playing comparison games and you've got social media. And, and I think a lot of that internal dissatisfaction really stems from the fact that you see what somebody else is doing or what it looks like they're doing, right? And, you're, and you start to compare it against your life, right? Versus really kind of looking inward and saying, am I enjoying this process? Am I enjoying what I'm doing? I mean, do you think that's what it is? Is that why people are so unhappy? I do. I think most of the time people are not really tuning into getting to know themselves. And that period of burnout was the best thing for me that ever happened because I spent a lot of time with getting to know myself <laughs> because I wanted to be able to look in the mirror and be happy with what I saw. Looking back at me, I wanted to be able to sleep at night without the world kind of on my on my shoulders and on, and on my thoughts. Listen, we are going to compare ourselves. There's no way to get out of that Honestly, like when you're actually looking at what's happening in the world and, you know, somebody in your industry and how farther they're getting and all of that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, sometimes you're going to do that. But also at the same time, practice grace with yourself because we all do it. We've all done it. And then also it's time to tune back in and say, okay, all right. Yes, I see everything else is going on, but what am I happy with? Like, what is it that is in alignment for me? Am I on my track? Am I doing what it is that I want to do? If there's something that I'm seeing that I'm jealous of in somebody else or whatever, is that something that I need not put on my goal list as opposed to looking at them and shaming and blaming yourself, maybe saying, huh, he has a Bentley. And I didn't realize I actually want Bentleys. Let me put that on my list or whatever it is, you know, and I think that's important to kind of, you know, look at and use that as, an understanding of how to edit your path. So maybe there are some things, maybe there's new desires that have come up. Maybe there are new things that you're interested in that maybe you didn't realize that you wanted before. And then kind of looking at that and saying, how do I actually look at myself and what it is that I'm doing and how do I maybe edit this or maybe craft it or maybe reconfigure the plan? And that's the best thing about being an entrepreneur is, is that you can always rework the damn thing. Like, you know, I can imagine like your first marketing plan, your first business plan, you don't do that shit anymore. Like it's, <laughs> So what, what business plan? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. You don't do that anymore. Things have to change. Like things have to shift and grow. And to be clear, I only had a marketing plan. I did not have a business plan <laughs> at the very beginning. But essentially, like, that's what I feel like happens oftentimes is, is that we, we do get caught up in that. But you have to kind of come back to yourself and practice grace around yourself. I'm very much a no judgment, a no judgment zone. If I'm feeling irritable, cranky, if I'm feeling angry at something, if I'm feeling jealous of something, if I'm feeling all of those things, I practice grace with myself because not practicing grace with myself, I saw what that got me. So I'm always like, okay, you know what? You're human. <laughs> You're human. You're going to experience the full range of human emotion. And now that you've done that, What's your next step? Like, what is the next right step for you? And that nobody else can tell you. And no, no Instagram post can tell you what's the next right step for you. 
Yeah, that's right. And maybe at, at our core, you know, many of us are just selfish human beings because I think when we flip that, because I've heard you say that's be a great entrepreneur, your mindset has to be centered around serving people and not trying to get things from other people. And, and I think that when we take the focus off ourselves and place it on actually, you know, helping somebody else succeed, perhaps that's where all those good feelings come in, right? Like gratitude and so on. Like what, what's been your experience with that? So for me, um, that I would say that that's been my main mantra in my life in general. Like it's really been about helping other people succeed. I I I feel so much gratitude and accomplishment with one of my clients' wins. It's something that they wanted. Like even when it comes to being a um, business advisor, like if if something goes really well for them or we worked on something and they actually you know make it happen and they accomplish that goal. One of my favorite times of this was um, I was. So supporting one of my entrepreneur clients in a launch that she had scheduled and we were closing the cart at midnight. And so this was her very first launch. So, you know, I decided to stay up with her. You know what I'm saying? So we were both on Zoom, about to close the cart. She's still obviously last minute. She still got sales coming in and all of that kind of stuff. She was up and her four-year-old daughter was up. And her four-year-old, because her four-year-old daughter, she couldn't, you know, she was feeling the energy of what was happening. And so she couldn't like put it down. And so after after the cart closed and we kind of saw the numbers, like what the numbers were going to be, she was like overwhelmed with like joy and like, oh my gosh, like such gratitude. But her daughter like jumped up and she had no idea what was going on. She didn't get it, but she jumped up and she was so excited. And then she hugged her mom and she put these big arms around her mom. And it was just like, oh, that's why I do this shit. That's it. That's what it's all about. And Jonah, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you? I would say for myself, that means the ability to be resilient because that has been my own personal journey. I want to give a huge thank you to Jonah Williams for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Jonah said that if you want to build a lasting legacy, you've got to constantly pay attention to the changing business landscape. Protect your key assets today in order to ensure a successful tomorrow. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Jonah Williams, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Oh, 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 oh,